As Gary mentioned, uh, today is Reformation Sunday, and I'll be preaching today on the topic of sola gratia, um, which is a Latin phrase affirming that uh, affirming the truth that God saves by grace alone. Uh, but in 1517, a German priest named Martin Luther exposed how the church had in some ways abandoned uh, grace alone. Now, Luther didn't get everything right. There are problems that you will find in his writings. But his criticism of indulgences was spot on. The Roman Catholic Church believes in a treasury of merit, and indulgences draw from this treasury as one way to reduce punishment in what they call purgatory. And in Luther's day, some were selling indulgences, pretending to sell forgiveness, uh, leading thousands to believe that God's grace can be earned. Well, Luther saw this as an assault on the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. Uh, No human merit could earn uh, the forgiveness of sins. And then others joined Luther in the protests, arguing from Scripture that grace is no longer grace if it can be earned. But this, is, this isn't just about uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church getting grace, uh, grace wrong. Uh, one way our culture at large jeopardizes grace is by teaching that our fundamental worth and identity is based on our performance. Uh, it comes with slogans like, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, commercials promote various kinds of drugs and diets to maximize performance. It comes with every Facebook post that says, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you're not accepted. Uh, it's, it's why stress and anxiety and depression are so prevalent in our culture. People exhaust themselves trying to measure up to society's expectations. More than that, we're surrounded by a cacophony of religions, which amount to various forms of, of self-help. Uh, if we're not careful, these, these beliefs begin to shape our own thinking. Sure, we, we might say that God saves sinners, but sometimes we live like it's our performance that's going to get us to the end. Salvation that started by grace alone uh, over time morphs into this exhausting grace plus works religion where we're never uh, quite sure what God thinks of us. We're never quite sure if we're going to make it to the end, uh, and we start having doubts. We're we're never quite sure if the gospel is all that good. Well, today I hope to clarify what counts most is not your performance. It's what God does for you from His own grace in Christ. From beginning to end, salvation is all grace, and I want to show you that from Ephesians. We'll be looking at various selections from the entire uh, book uh, this morning. Before we jump in, though, I want to clarify a few things. When we talk about grace, uh, we're not talking about tolerance for sin, okay? Sometimes uh, you might get this in your culture, you know, give me some grace, man, right? You you get this idea, and and what they really mean is cut me some slack, right? But grace never minimizes sin. Titus 2 says that grace teaches us to to deny ungodliness. Uh, 
and worldly desires. Um, also, grace is not something we can earn, and that's true even after you're a Christian. Okay, grace is always unmerited favor at Christ's expense. It's unmerited favor at Christ's expense. Also, the truth, the, the, the true source of grace is the triune God. And you can see it there starting in verse 2 when Paul greets the Ephesians this way, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then later in verse 13, he speaks of the Spirit becoming our guarantee. So in unceasing unity, the Trinity saves. And today I'm going to mention several moments uh, that, that happen across history. And these moments might stress maybe the unique work of the Father, and at some points the unique work of the Son, and at other points the unique work of the Spirit. But know that, that they're, kind of, they're all of one piece in the Trinity's plan to save us. Also, uh, please notice that Paul stresses one's union with Christ throughout this passage. Uh, in, in, the, in the first 14 verses, we hear this steady refrain of in Christ, in the beloved, in him, through Jesus. Uh, more than 10 times, he says it. Uh, we should see from that that all of the riches of God's grace, uh, they come to us in union with Christ. So as you, as, you hear, as you hear me talk about the, the various beautiful things about grace today, uh, you need to ask yourself, am I in Christ? Okay? Do I share this, this spiritual bond, this relationship with Jesus? Um, can I call these beautiful things of grace, can I call them my own? Right? It's one thing if we kind of talk in the abstract, like, oh, God does those things for the church, right? But can you say, God does these things for me, right? Uh, union with Christ will amaze you, and it is solid ground for your assurance. Now, with that said, let's look at our first moment in God's gracious plan uh, to save us. Salvation is by grace alone because God elects us in, his, in Christ uh, before history. God elects us in Christ before history. Look at verse 3. Uh, Paul is celebrating the spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the first thing he begins with is election. It says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, notice several things here about God's election. One is that God's choice occurs before the foundation of the world. Okay, election doesn't occur in history, but before history. Also, notice how the, the choice or the election is personal. He chose us in Christ. Okay? He chose us. He didn't simply choose a way that people could be saved, uh, nor did he simply choose a condition by which people would be saved. Uh, he, he chose a people, us, right, the church, and he put them into Christ. 
Uh, we've been looking at the book of Revelation recently, and Revelation speaks of this in terms of those written in the Lamb's book of life, right, before the foundation of the world. Notice, too, that God's sovereign will stands behind the choice. Uh, verse 5 says that he did this according to the purpose or the pleasure, some of your translations have, the pleasure of his will. So election isn't grounded in our will to choose God, but in God's will to choose us. It's not grounded in, in God foreseeing that at some point in the future, this person and this person and this person would believe upon Christ. It's grounded solely in God's purpose to save whom he pleases. It's not like choosing somebody for a baseball team either, right? Our choice is based on performance, what they can offer us. But God doesn't need us, nor was there anything in us that moved him. He simply chose, he, he chose us simply because he wanted to set his love upon us. So for these, these reasons, uh, many in church history have described God's gracious act of election as unconditional. Okay, God elects to save certain individuals, but not based on their works or their foreseen fate. Uh, and I think that's an accurate way to describe it. It's, it's based solely on God's sovereign pleasure. It's grace alone from eternity past, which also means that this choice is ultimately for his praise. It's something else to observe in, uh, here in verse 6. To, he says he does this to the praise of his glorious grace. So we see here that election is a gracious act, Nothing outside God bound him to choose us. We did nothing to earn it. Uh, we did nothing to put God in debt to us. Uh, he wasn't obligated. Freely he chose us. And therefore, all human boasting is excluded, right? It all praise belongs to God. That's the first moment uh, I want to highlight. Uh, look now at a second moment in God's gracious plan. Christ accomplishes our redemption in history. Christ accomplishes our redemption in history. God's choice before history is in Christ, and Paul then returns to that same little phrase in verse 7, in Christ or in the beloved. He says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, sometimes Paul describes our former manner of life as one that's outside of Christ. Okay, we see this in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, and, and, and then once you believe in Christ, we then become in Christ for, for justification. Uh, but at other times, Paul uses the, the phrase in Christ to describe our solidarity with Jesus in his once-for-all death on the cross, okay? Meaning it's not so much uh, focused on, on the faith union of the individual believer throughout history. It, in Christ, is something that emphasizes this, this one-time moment that Christ died for all his people, and that happens here in verse 7. Verse 7 mentions two things that Jesus' death accomplished for those in Christ. Uh, we see both redemption and forgiveness. And both touch on, on, on these two obstacles that are impossible for us to overcome by our own efforts. 
okay? So uh, redemption, for example, has to do with, with deliverance from, from slavery. Uh, you might imagine a man in, in shackles, right? The, the language here comes from the Exodus. Uh, but you might imagine a, a man in, in shackles, right, underneath the, the, the whip of a, of, a, of a tyrant, and he's working himself to death. Uh, sin puts us in, in shackles like that. But the slavery to sin is even worse um, because it's not like we're in the shackles fighting to get out of them. We actually prefer them. We, we, we like being there. Uh, that's the state we're in. Um, uh, on top of that, then we see this word forgiveness, which, which implies that we're also guilty before a holy God for, for breaking his law. Okay, um, so we deserve God's punishment. And what it's saying here is that when Christ died on the cross for his people, God secured both redemption from slavery and forgiveness of sins. Uh, and this blessing comes through his blood, right, which is a euphemism for his death on the cross. All right, it, in, in that once-for-all-time event uh, at the cross, uh, God put his son forward as the perfect sacrifice when he died for the sins of his people, mysteriously, we reunited to him in that death. Uh, so he's not only a substitute, he's our representative substitute. Okay? He died for all of those who would, be, who would be saved out of Adam and placed into Christ. All at once, Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves he did everything necessary to secure our right standing with God. So you have to ask, like, what did we have to do with that? Like, nothing. We, we, we had nothing to do with that great work. It, it's all God's doing. It's all grace. Uh, God, uh, God did all this, it says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So it's not just a... Uh, right, a little sprinkle, a little dab of grace for you. No, he, he lavishes his kindness upon you. Right? He, he dumps buckets of grace upon his people in the beloved son. Another moment in God's plan, uh, God applies Christ's redemption to his people throughout history. God applies Christ's redemption to his people throughout history. God accomplishes salvation at the cross, but this his, his people from each generation, right, as they're, as, they're, as they're born into the world, from each generation, they must believe what God accomplished for them. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and believed in him. So from each generation, God's people must believe what God accomplished through the cross. Election is unconditional. We talked about that earlier. But that does not erase the condition to believe. Election is the reason many will believe and meet that condition. But lest we miss God's grace in that whole process of belief, look at chapter 2, verses verse one, 1 to 10. 
He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, people, grow, people who grow dull uh, to God's grace have lost sight of what they once were. We're not just drowning at sea here. If only someone would just throw us a, a, life, a, a life raft, right? A life preserver. No, this text is describing us as flatlined on the bottom of the ocean floor. We're dead to the things of God. We're captive to Satan. Now, looking back on your life, um, you may not feel like you were that bad off. I mean, you may not think when you were five, right? I wasn't a slave to Satan. My mom and dad raised me in a pretty good home, right? But we must be careful not to evaluate ourselves by human standards. This is what God says we are like outside of Christ. And nobody can do anything about it. Dead people can't make themselves alive. But Paul goes on with these words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing reversal, right? We, we were once dead, but God made us alive. We were once captive to Satan, but now God has, made, has raised us up and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, that's above Satan and all the other rulers and authorities and powers, right? We were once children of wrath, but now God has made us trophies of grace to display his, his kindness in the coming ages. God did all of this. Look at verse 8 also. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So you have these two denials, right? Not your own doing. Not a result of works. And those two denials are why we say that salvation is by grace alone. That doesn't mean grace is unrelated to works. Uh, look at verse 10. It, he adds, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works don't earn grace, but they do display grace. They display God's grace, God's activity, right? Him working, Him recreating, Him preparing beforehand, and then helping us walk in them. How did we move from 
walking with the sons of disobedience in verse 2 to now walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand. Everything else in between is said grace. Like God did it, right? And then in chapter, uh, then in verses uh, 11 to 22, we see even more things that grace does. God's grace also creates this one uh, new humanity. Once the Gentile nations he talks about were strangers to God's promises, we were cut off from, from his, his, his promises and we were cut off from God's people uh, and we were once far off from God. We were without Christ, that is, without a Messiah. But now, he says in verse 13, now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So his death, he goes on to talk about how Jesus' death on the cross tore down the the barriers to make us one with his covenant people. Grace not only makes us one with God, but but he's saying it also makes us one with each other. He joins us together such that we grow into a temple by the Holy Spirit, which is what you get in verse 22. Then in chapter 3, verse 7, Paul explains how this was all part of God's eternal plan, a mystery that was hidden for the ages in God, but now revealed in the person of Jesus. In verse 7, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, he says, according to the gift of God's grace. There it is again. And so, so the revelation of the, uh, uh, the revelation of the, the gospel, the revelation of the mystery that's given to the Gentiles through the proclamation of the word is itself a grace of God. Chapters 4 through 6 then show what the outworking of God's grace looks like in the life of that new humanity that God creates. For example, Christ gifts the church in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And those gifts, he goes on to explain, are for the maturing of the church into Christ, building, build, being built up together into Christ's love. That was chapter 4, verse 13 and 16. And then in chapter 4, verse 24, we learn that we have a a new self that's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God had created Adam in his image and likeness, right? And our sin, when sin enters the world, it warps that image. It, It mars that image. But through God's grace, he says, when you're put into Christ, he renews that image in you. He's restoring his own image in us. And in doing so, you also become this this conduit of grace in your interactions with others, including the words you speak. Look at chapter 4, verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give what to those who hear? That it may give grace to those who hear. You're now a conduit. He's taken you, this child of wrath, this dead person, right? And he's now made you a conduit for his grace to come to other people through the words you speak. That'll transform your parenting, right? And your marriage, right? And this church body and how we interact with each other in our words. 
In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, We were once darkness, but by grace you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, and, and when we do, our light exposes the darkness of the world. In chapter 5, verse 18, he then explains how the grace of the Holy Spirit's filling both encourages the church, right? Chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the, the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, uh, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this, this, when the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Spirit's at work in us, it encourages the church, it builds up the church, and then we see he gives some examples. It rightly orders the home with husbands and wives and parents and children, and then he goes on to talk about slaves and masters. So this grace is now touching all these various relationships that you're involved with. And when things get hard in those same relationships, he then equips us in chapter 6 with the armor of God, which is essentially, it's, these are, this is all language pulling from Isaiah to talk about you're essentially putting on Jesus himself. You are, when you put on Jesus uh, and his armor, you are bringing Christ into these various relationships. And this armor protects us in the evil day and all that he likes to stir up in dividing people. Right? So, so we, we, are we get to stand firm and strong because we have put on Jesus. So that's a snapshot of the new community that grace produces. And then finally, God will finish salvation at the end of history. God will finish salvation at the end of history. That's another moment here to consider in God's gracious plan Peppered throughout Ephesians are these, are these little uh, statements of, of what God intends to finish by grace. In chapter 1, verse 4, we see that the goal of election is that we be holy and blameless before God. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, it says, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So God's grace begins in eternity past, but it never wavers until the end of the world. The Holy Spirit guarantees that God will finish what He began. If God sets forward a plan to make us holy and blameless, right? He's not going to have an oopsie-daisy along the way to get you there. He's, gonna, he's not going to fail. He's going to accomplish it by His Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 7, we see God saves us so that in the coming ages, right, that's future, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. And when you think about it in the Scriptures, what is the one thing God is passionate about most? Displaying His glory. He is committed to, to making his glory shine. And here, uh, if he's committed to that and he puts you in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, that's a done deal because he gets the glory. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 25, uh, Paul is 
is teaching on the way husbands ought to love their wives. But listen to what he says of the work of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Right? If, if he gives you the engagement ring, he's going to bring you to himself in splendor. Right? This is the idea. He's not going to fail in the meantime, so that the church, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That's the same words he, he used in, in chapter 1, verse 4, related to election. Jesus' death wasn't simply for our sanctification. It secured the glorification of God's elect. He, he died to present the church to himself in splendor. And then we see that happening right at the end of the story in Revelation 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride has made herself ready. So here's the point. If God elects to save us in Christ before history, and He sends Christ to represent us in history, and He binds us to Christ by the Spirit throughout history, then we can rest assured that He will raise us in Christ at the end of history. God's salvation is all of one piece, remember. At no point does He lose what He sets out to save. And when we're raised from the dead to receive our inheritance, to receive new bodies, to receive wills that never sin again, no one will say, I did that. We will only boast it was all God's grace. It was all grace. Which leads us to the first way grace alone should affect us. Salvation by grace alone, leads us to honor the God of all grace. Three times we see it repeated in chapter 1, uh, to the praise of His glorious grace, in verse 6. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. When salvation is by grace alone, honor belongs to God alone. This is why sola gratia leads to soli deo gloria. Grace alone isn't just this abstract, isn't just about this abstract doctrinal precision. It's, it's about promoting true worship and guarding the church from false worship, the false worship of self. It's about ascribing to God the praise that's due his name. Grace alone also means that we walk in humility before God and others. We walk in humility before God and others. If, if salvation is by works, you know we have something to boast about. But if salvation is all grace, we have nothing to boast about. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.29, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're a Christian, there's no room for, for pride. There's, there's no room for looking down uh, upon others. There's no room for partiality or envy. Knowing God saves by sovereign grace shouldn't, shouldn't lead you to have this kind of theological swagger about yourself. We're the ones with all the answers, right? Where you have your five solas t-shirt on. 
No, it should lead to compassion and to kindness and to meekness and patience. That's what Colossians 3.12 says. Look over at Colossians chapter 3 where he connects this. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's elect ones, holy and beloved, he says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. If that's not your attitude, then you really don't know grace. You're just repeating words of theologians you like. Humility grows in the soils of grace. Humility grows from knowing that there was nothing in you that moved God to love you. He simply chose to love you, unworthy as you are. And that affects how you should interact with others. Grace should also motivate you to walk in holiness. God's grace, as we have seen, you know, He lavishes upon us. It's very extravagant. It's so extravagant that some accuse Paul of lawlessness. If grace was this lavish, they got nervous, right? And they, they feared, well, some are just going to keep sinning all the more that grace might abound. And Paul just destroys that objection, doesn't he? By showing that if grace truly saves from sin, then how could we still walk in it? More than that, he showed that grace both trains and empowers. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. So keep that in mind. For the grace of God has appeared. What does it do? Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So if you were nervous about lawlessness, here's your answer, right? To redeem us from all lawlessness, redeem us from, set us free from that slavery, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you see, grace is both training here and it's empowering. It trains us to deny ungodliness and to live godly lives. And then it empowers by showing us that Christ is the one who redeems from lawlessness and purifies a people. So we deny ungodliness and we pursue holiness, right? But he's in here, he's in us, working these things out, making us zealous for good works by grace. Which leads to something else. Find your help in God's daily grace. 
Find your help in God's daily grace. Paul ends Ephesians like this. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, that's different, how he's, that's different from how he started the letter, wasn't it? And when he started his letter, he said, grace to you, right? So his, his letter is a means of God bringing grace to them. But now he's praying for the church, grace be with you, right? The idea is, you know, grace be with you at the office tomorrow when you're living out these words, right? Grace be with you in the morning, when the kids are arguing over who was first in the bathroom, grace be with you in that moment, right? Grace be with you when your brother or sister offends you and, and you must learn to forbear and forgive. Grace be with you in your, in your speaking with others at care group or one-on-one or coffee. Grace be with you when, when cancer hits a family member and you need help holding on to God's promises. Grace be with you when you're tempted to give up and throw in the towel. We need God's grace to be with us every day. And here we are assured that God's grace goes with us. This is also why the writer of Hebrews tells us to come before the throne of grace, right? The way has been opened through Jesus. Come before the throne of grace when you have need. Next, if salvation is truly by grace alone, then we should herald God's grace in Christ to others herald God's grace in Christ to others. Paul counted his mission as a stewardship of God's grace in chapter 3, verse 2, and part of that stewardship was announcing the gospel of God's grace to others. We live in a world that's swarming with religions that assume man is good enough to make himself right with God, that man can earn God's favor, that man can work his way to heaven. Our world is also teeming with people who exhaust themselves seeking approval from God and others instead of resting in the God of all grace. I mean, especially in America, your measure, your worth is often valued by what you can produce for people. Even worse, we have so-called Kurt so-called churches who have taught others that if they'll just do X, Y, and Z, then God is sure to bless you. That's not good news. That's poison. We have a better gospel. People will only be freed from their exhausting self, their exhausting man-made religion with the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So share it with others. Share it with others. People sometimes think that The the vision we talked about earlier of God's sovereign grace in election, it hinders missions and evangelism. But really, it's only hope for missions and evangelism. Because of divine election, we're guaranteed that people will be saved. Jesus has other sheep that must hear his voice, right? John 10, 16. Those ordained to eternal life will be saved, Acts 13, 48. The Lamb will receive the reward of His sufferings, Revelation 5, 9. More than that, sovereign grace means that God can save anybody He wants to. No matter the background, 
no matter the despair, no matter the shameful past, no matter the heinous crime, His grace is greater than all of our sin. God is not bound by your evil. He's totally free to save. If anybody ever says to you, I don't know if God can save someone like me, right? Sovereign grace enables us to say right back, well, he saved me, right? I'm just like you. Your sin isn't the determining factor in whether you can be saved. Grace is, and his grace in Christ is more than sufficient to save anybody. So come to him, right? Can we say it like that? Amen. Lastly, hope in God's grace to finish your salvation. Hope in God's grace to finish your salvation. 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16 says that God loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We have good hope. Why? Because God gave it to us through grace. We have His Spirit by grace. He's our guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. We've also seen that Jesus didn't merely die, Jesus didn't die merely to cleanse His bride. He died to receive His bride in splendor. He died so that the church would be presented to Himself without spot or wrinkle. What He begins, He also finishes. I remember visiting uh, my granny. I've told some of you this before. But I remember visiting my granny, and in the the last few years of her life, she stayed in a nursing home. And most of the conversation was spent reminding her what my name was and what son I belonged to of hers and where I was living and who my children were. I remember her mind fading very quickly. And it got me thinking about how much hope we truly have when salvation is by grace alone. Because what happens when I become too weak to serve others? What happens when I can't remember my wife's name or my name? And the worst to consider What happens when our memory so fades that we cannot remember Jesus? What happens when your body is so failing that you can't read your Bible and you forget how to pray and you don't feel the warmth of his promises? Does that mean now we lose favor with God? And our gospel says, no way. It's by grace alone. My salvation is accomplished in Christ, and in Him I'll stand right before God. I might forget Jesus due to my failing memory and brain, but He will never forget me. From beginning to end, I am His and He is mine. And that's true for all who share that union with Christ. From beginning to end, you are His, and He is yours. And He will fit you to see Him face to face. 
So to him be praise and glory and honor forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray that in the coming days we would learn to trust it more. And for those of us who are bent in exhausting ourselves on our own performance, feeling like we never live up, pray for all of for all who are in that place, you would cause them to rest in the beloved Son, in whom you have loved them, set your affection upon them. Amen.